and welcome to How to Deal When the Shit Gets Real podcast. I'm Rietta. And I'm Connie. And today we are here with Mr. J. J, how do you deal when shit gets real? And just tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> I bury my head in the sand. That's what I do. No, uh, so thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, I am uh, Mr. J. I am an intrapersonal relationship coach, which uh, deals with the relationship you have with yourself, because I always say the relationship you have with yourself sets the tone for all of the relationships around you. And I'm also a betrayal trauma practitioner. So what I do is I help guide those that have been through betrayal trauma through some of the steps to go from whatever you want to call it, hurt to hopeful, obstacle to opportunity, victim to victor. I help guide people through the steps of betrayal trauma because betrayal trauma, unlike other types of trauma, is more personal. It's more intentional. So it's, it's slightly different, although our body reacts the same, but not to get on this big, long thing. We can get into that at some point. But how do I deal with when the shit gets real? You buck up, pull up your big boy pants, take a deep breath, and you walk through the fire. Or like I like to say, you buckle up, buttercup. (laughs) That's a better way of saying it, yeah. So what inspired you to become a relationship coach slash, I don't want to mess it up, whatever, your betrayal coach? (laughs) (laughs) You know, a couple of things. I've always been seriously fascinated with how people react, you know, how they react when they're alone how people react when they're in a crowd, how people react when they're around people. It's really fascinating. Like, you know, we, we all have, I don't want to say, we all have multiple masks. The three of us are, have our podcast mask on. When we, when we talk to our parents, we have our parent mask on. When we talk to our kids or our boss, we have, so it's just fascinating to me, the different types of reactions and responses. Even like if you walk in the mall, just, just kind of watching people and how they react to their significant others or how they react to their store clerk, or it's just, people are very fascinating. I studied psychology in school after getting one of my degrees is in psychology. I just started working with people more on a level of marriage, uh, premarital counseling, marriage counseling, things like that. And then eventually I got into coaching because like I said, really everybody's relationship that they have around them first starts off with the relationship we have with ourselves. If we're loving and generous to ourselves, we're going to be loving and generous to others. You can't give to others what you don't first possess yourself. If you're judgmental to yourself, you're going to, you're going to by default be judgmental to others. So really working on being the best person you are to yourself is going to benefit not only yourself, but every relationship around you. And then due to my childhood, which was just filled with nonstop ongoing trauma, it was fascinating to me to study some of trauma. And it was a kind of by default, how I got into becoming a trauma practitioner. I actually was watching a TEDx video and I wrote to the person who was speaking at the TEDx. And she said, I actually have a membership community online. You're a coach. Would you like to kind of check it out? I checked it out. I was very interested. She said, would you want to go through the program to become certified as a betrayal trauma practitioner or coach? And I said, absolutely. And I did. The rest is history. I just gave you about 20 years in two minutes. Well, that's impressive. (laughs) It was a very impressive two minutes. (laughs) Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about your rough childhood and how that inspired you to look inward? 
I don't remember much before the age of six and a half, I don't think. But when we were seven, when I was seven, my family bought a house and we went away for the weekend. Unbeknownst to us, the house caught on fire while we were away. And when we came back home, we pulled into our driveway, which the only thing standing was our chimney, which was on the driveway. Everything was completely burnt down to the ground. Family heirlooms, our first haircuts, all of our toys, you name it, it was completely gone. And as I'm talking to you now, I can still smell the embers. I mean, it's, that's, how, that's how your body remembers trauma. I don't know how this happened, but my parents couldn't afford house insurance, so we never had house insurance. So we wound up staying with my uncle. He lived in a small trailer. It was my mother and my siblings and I stayed with my uncle. My father kind of went his own way to try to see if he can find work and establish ourselves. How many but, siblings? Uh, I just had, uh, I have an older sibling and a younger sister, younger oh, okay. sibling. My uncle only had a small trailer. So we would all huddle up on the living room floor at night to go to sleep. And after my family fell asleep, that's when my uncle would come and wake me up and bring me into his bedroom so I can show my appreciation for everything he'd done for our family. Oh my goodness. And I always tell people, I don't know what was worse, to be honest with you, the the violation from my uncle at night or the screaming, deafening silence that we all that I heard sitting around the table the next morning at breakfast. Like I I you know Because they knew. They knew and I knew, but but my 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 family didn't know. So I wanted to scream as loud as I could, but I just sat there, you know, silently while eating my bowl of cereal. So anyways, we wound up moving closer to the city in the city. And at this point, I think my mother got a little taste of freedom. So she filed for divorce from my, from my father. When we got an apartment, she kind of turned it into a big nonstop party. It became AC, DC, blaring, pot smoking, drug infested, sex all over the place party 24 seven that just went on. My brother kind of left to go stay with my father and he left to go stay with friends. And I was there with my sister. So I kind of came, became like the second parent. Well, the only parent to her because my father wasn't around at the time. And my mother went into drinking. Basically it was every night, clean up, throw up and vomit and beer cans and you name it while everybody was partying and doing their, you know, drugs. And, and then I couldn't sleep at night because, you know, any random stranger that wanted to come in and, you know, repeat what my uncle did, that was always a concern. And that happened, you know, on multiple occasions. And then I get up early the next morning and get my sister ready for school and feed her, drop her off at her elementary school, run to my middle school. And by that time I was always late. So I was getting detention and I couldn't stay for detention because then I wouldn't be able to pick my sister up. So I would leave detention. It was just a nightmare. And so finally I got to the point where, you know, it, it was a couple of years later where I told my mother I had to move out. I was, you know, because at the, at the age of 12, I was hospitalized for extreme stress. I remember the doctor asking me, like, he was shaking his head and he was like, why in the world? Like, you're 12. Why are you stressed? This doesn't make sense to me. And I remember just lying and saying, oh, it's it's school related with tests and report cards are coming out and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I kind of knew at that point I couldn't stay where I was, but it was a difficult decision because my sister was there. Long story short, I told my mother, I won't give you a hard time as far as collecting government payments for me. If you don't give me a hard time and let me move out, that was the decision. I didn't have a place to go. So I left and I kind of stayed on the streets for a while. And it was uh, after the second gun to my temple, which how ridiculous, what are you going to rob from a homeless people? 
person. Yeah. You know? I was just going to ask that. Like, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. Like, it doesn't. So, well, I, I, I'm just assuming maybe they thought I had money in my pocket. I don't know. Or maybe the little food that I scrounged up somewhere they wanted, scrounged up. I'm not sure. But anyways, I, uh, I remember sitting under a bridge, listening to the cars above me go by. And I would always, I don't know, kind of fantasize, like, where's that family going? Maybe they're going to the beach together. Maybe they're, maybe they're going on vacation as a family. And I just vowed to myself that I was going to do better for myself in life. And that was the beginning of turning around. Eventually, I, I got two jobs bagging groceries, but I couldn't work many hours because I was underage. One store didn't know that I was working at the other one. They assumed I was in school. So I got some hours at one store, some hours at the other store. But I lived on one side of town and I worked on two completely different sides of town. I had to literally run eight miles from one store to the next to bag groceries. And I used to love it when I'd bring groceries out to somebody's car and they'd give me a dollar for a tip because I'd think, ooh, now I can get ramen noodles. Chicken's my favorite flavor. (laughs) And so uh, eventually I I was able to secure an apartment. How in the world a landlord let me rent an apartment at the age of 14, I don't know. But I must have been a good suave talker. I'd say so. Yeah, really. Mm -hmm. Or maybe uh, looked older. Yeah. And probably spoke older too, because of my, you know, hellish life experiences. So, you know, obviously, you know, quit school, worked my jobs and did that until I got pretty low at one point. And I remember walking to the community college, which was a good 15 miles from, from where I was living. I'll never forget. Her name was Mary McMahon. She was, you know, an admin person. I forgot what they call them. She said, okay, we need high school transcripts. And I said, well, I don't, I went to sixth grade. I don't have high school transcripts. And she says, well, I need a letter from your parents. And I said, I haven't talked to them in years. So I don't think you're going to get a letter from my parents. And it was hard. It was difficult because it was another obstacle. It was another challenge that I didn't think I was going to be able to overcome. And she just kept doing her paperwork at her desk. And she was kind of ignoring me. And I, I, I said, Mary, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I promise you, I promise you, if you pull strings to get me into this college, I will prove to you in the first semester that I'm college material. If not in the first semester, I'll walk away silent. I promise. I don't know. I don't have any paperwork to give you. I don't have nothing to give you but my word. Mm -hmm. I remember she turned around and she was doing something in the filing cabinet. And I thought, man, she's just going to ask me to leave. I was a little defeated at that point. She turned around and she put a piece of paper on the desk and she said, one semester. And if you don't make it, you never sat in front of me. (laughs) Well, two and a half years later, I graduated with high honors. I went on to my bachelor's degree, graduating with honors. And then eventually onto my master's degree with a lot of hard work and dedication, graduated with honors. That's, so That's awesome. impressive. Do you still talk to Mary? Have you gone back and said, thank you for giving me the chance? Interesting that you would ask that because, Rietta, for the past decade, I have been saying, I got to look up Mary McMahon. Now, she was, how do I say? Older? Yes. <laughs> so, so I'm not sure if I would be able to find her where she is, if she is even around anymore, but I will be forever grateful to her that she, I don't know, turned a blind eye or maybe saw the passion and sincerity and determination in my eyes. And I don't know what it was, but she really went on a limb for me. So I had to make it right. I had to make it right. And trust me, when I took advanced statistics, when I quit school at sixth grade, that was not easy. That was oh, not, easy. not, but when you go through hell, 
yeah, the rest is kind of just like, you know, I'm not going to say a cake, but yeah. you've been through the worst. Well, Mary, if you're out there listening, Mr. J is thankful. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Indebted forever. Then I wound up, like I said, I just gave you 10 years and 10 minutes. But what wound up happening is I actually went into my first semester of college. And with that first semester of college, I was able to get 12 college credits. And it just so happened that with my 12 college credits, I was able to get what's called a high school equivalency with those 12 credits. So Mm -hmm. I went to the following semester, I went to sign up for college and the registrar's office said, well, are you you registered with selective service? Now here I am, I just turned 19 as all 19 year olds, sorry, you're relatively clueless. I said, what in the world is selective service? And she said, well, call this number. So I call this number who transfers me to this number, who gets me on this number, who I'm on hold. Finally, I'm, I'm in touch with an army recruiter. I'm like, how in the world did I get an, on the phone with you? <laughs> he starts talking to me. I'm like, oh, no, I'm not in. No way. No, nobody in my family was ever in the military. I don't have a military background. I don't know nothing about the military. Not interested. No, sorry. He's like, why don't you just come down? We'll have a conversation. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how all these start. Not interested. (laughs) But one thing led to another. And uh, I was sitting uh, in front of an army recruiter. And next thing you know, I'm signing eight years of my life away. What happened was I joined the military using my equivalency degree because I had my 12 credits of, of college. And then from there, after I came back from training and my AIT, and that's schooling for people that aren't familiar with military, it's schooling in the military. And then I came back and I finished up my college while I was serving in the military on the weekends. And what they call them is a weekend warrior. You're not going to like what my husband calls them. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. And you know what? Okay. So your husband can even hate me more after I say this. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I I missed two wars by a matter of months, but I still am considered a veteran. I get all the benefits of being. I mean, I don't get any payment. Don't get me wrong, but I can get 10% off at Lowe's and hey, I'll take it. No, no, he wouldn't care that you're a veteran. He's just, he thinks he's funny. So he comes up with goofy names for things. So yeah. <laughs> well, share it. Hey, I get, if shit can get real, share it. <laughs> <laughs> he calls reservist tampons. <laughs> I love it. Duly noted. That's awesome. And you know what's funny about that, Rietta, is you want to know what my husband calls the tampon? Oh God, what? <laughs> a reload. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. That just got awkward. (laughs) I just thought it was funny. Kind of connects. I'm just saying that your husband and my husband think a little bit too much alike. A little bit. I'm saying. Great minds think alike. Hey, I guess so. So anyway, just to fast forward a little bit, when I finished my bachelor's degree, because I told you I did eventually go into my master's, but when I finished my bachelor's degree, one of my passions in life on top of psychology was theater and entertainment. I'm from upstate New York. And so I told myself, whenever I finish with my bachelor's degree, I'm going to move to the big city and pursue film and television. And that's what I did. So when I was about uh, 27 years old, I gave myself a year to downsize all of my things in my apartment, give away, sell, whatever. And at the end of the year, I moved to New York City and I pursued film and television. I was there for probably about a year and a half where, uh, you know, I was on Sex in the City and Criminal Intent, and I did some background stuff in some movies. I actually wrote and recorded a dance album. Uh, believe it or not, I joined a Jewish traveling boy band, even though I'm not Jewish. 
And that was <laughs> I love it. We were actually booked on the Jimmy Kimmel show at one point. So I did a lot of things in the entertainment industry. But you know what they say? You don't find love. Love finds you. So one day I just was like, whoa, I think I have feelings for somebody. The next thing you know, I'm in a rider truck going down to Georgia because my spouse got into law school. That was never in my life plan. But as I'm sure you know, you know, you're on one path in life and all of a sudden life is like, no, I think I want you on this road. And you're like, oh, okay. I can either go kicking or screaming or I can embrace it. I went into teaching while in Georgia and uh, I taught at a hospital because, you know, by federal law, even kids that are in the hospital, whether it's, you know, leukemia, what have you, they still have to have an education. So I worked in a hospital and uh, I taught there for a while. And then um, after law school, we moved to Washington, DC. And that's where I got heavy into doing premarital counseling and some marital counseling. And on top of that, I also taught at a school for juvenile delinquents. So it was like the last stop for these kids before they went to, you know, behind bars, if they didn't get get it right here, they were going behind bars. And that was, uh, that was awesome. And I'm going to tell you why. Yes, we did have teachers that left in ambulances. I mean, you know, I don't know if you ever saw that movie wow. with uh, what was that higher ground? This was a pretty hardcore school, but because of, I think my childhood and because of my theater background, I was always able to regulate the temperature of my class. I didn't come in with this, you know, stern or nothing like that. I, you know, if I felt, if I felt there was a fight about to brew in my classroom, I would jump on my desk and belt out some opera. And all of a sudden my kids are like, okay, this <laughs> let me just turn around and finish my math. You know, that's why I said, like, I don't know if I said this, but uh, I was thrown in special ed when I was like in second or third grade for, for a mere speech impediment. Now, special ed 40 years ago was not the special ed it is today. Yeah, um, I yeah. think because I had a heart, I, you know, they did some testing on me. And I think because I came from a, a difficult home life and because I had a slight speech impediment, they just threw me into special ed. I think, you know, between me being in special ed and um, my theater background and my childhood, every year I was winning awards for best classroom management, most progress with their students. So it really worked in my advantage, all the hell that I've been through. It was a job you were meant to do. Yeah. So I have to ask, because I'm a huge Sex and the City fan, and now I'm going to have to go back and watch. What oh, episode Lord. were you in? <laughs> First of all, 99.9% of everything I was ever in is on the floor, caught in post-production. But I was on a couple episodes. One of them was a Sailor episode, which actually... That's, that um, was Sweet Week, right? When Yes. What's the pretty sexy one? Sarah Jessica Parker. Like, do you want real names or Sex and the City names? Sex and the, <laughs> it doesn't matter. The, 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 the sexy one that's always voluptuous. and talking Oh, sexy. Samantha. Yes. So there was a scene in Fleet Week where she had to lift up her shirt. And I was directly in front of her. However, on the side of the camera. So you can't see me, but I was directly in front of her. And that scene had to be taken like 12 times. So she had to lift her <laughs> shirt up like 12 times. And I was thinking to myself, Man, if I was straight, I'd be loving life right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love Sex in the City. So now I have an excuse again to go back and watch it more and see if I can spot you. It's like, where's yeah. Waldo, but where's Mr. J? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, but I will tell you what, every one of those, uh, all four of those girls are very, very nice. They are Aww. very nice. I will say every scene Sarah Jessica Parker is in, she's standing on top of some box because she's relatively shorter. Yeah, you can't see the box because obviously it's out of the camera angle, but um, she's relatively short. So she's 
on a box usually and in high heel shoes to even make her look, you know, a little taller than Super that. tall, yeah. Yeah, but I will say one of the things I did enjoy was writing and recording an album and I used to like gig all over New Jersey and New York and when we went to LA to be on the Jimmy Kimmel show, I went around to a few clubs and did that and stuff. But anyways, I digress. You did all that and then of course, from what I've seen too in your bio, you, you wrote a children's book. So how did you get there? How did you end up writing a children's book? When I started working with kids years ago, 99% of them came from a home with a mom and dad. Washington, D.C., that was about, you know, 18 years after I started working with kids. 99% of my kids came from a single family home, or they were raised um, a grandparent or raised by a foster parent or raised by a sibling. So the family dynamics changed considerably. However, the books that I would read to my kids didn't change. So uh, we, I worked in a very inner city school district and there was just no money, no money for books. And even if there were, were money for books, there weren't books that represented my population. And I remember one time kind of, you know, venting to a teacher about, you know, we don't have any money for books. And um, even if we did, there's really no books. And it's just a little disheartening because at one point I taught second grade story time books that that represented their families and stuff. And then while I was talking to this teacher, it hit me, duh, write one. That was a pretty long, tedious process, to be honest with you. But I did write one. It's uh, I am loved right where I am. And it talks about no matter what family dynamic you come from, you're supposed to be there and you are loved. It's on Amazon and it has 99.9% five stars with everybody that's, you know, purchased the book. And basically now what I do, I mean, the book still sells, don't get me wrong. But now when I go around and like, if if I do speeches at schools, or if I talk, whatever, I I give my book away, because, you know, it's a it's a necessary book. So yeah, so that's my book. Now I work primarily with people that have been betrayed really the gamut. I will get calls from people that have to do a stage presentation and they just need a little self, you know, little boost of confidence. I'll get calls from people that, you know, looking for some ways to increase their, their self-esteem or whatever. And then certainly I get calls from people that just discovered their spouse has been living a secret life and they are on the verge of taking their life. Okay. I was just going to ask if that was what betrayed meant, like if they were getting cheated on. So you clarified. So that's perfect. Yeah. Now, having said that betrayal trauma can happen to you. We could be betrayed by our parents. We could be betrayed by our kids. We could be betrayed by, we can even be betrayed by ourselves. Think about it. If you're exercising and you're eating right and you're doing all the right things and then you go to the doctor and you find you have, you know, a lump in your breast and you have cancer, that's a betrayal. Betrayal trauma can happen and actually does happen to all of us, whether it's little T or big T trauma. For the betrayal trauma, what, as a coach, how do you treat it, the betrayal trauma? First of all, that's completely individualized to every person. One of the things that I do is called an IHP. And this is just something that I do. No other coach does it as far as I know. And it's an individualized healing plan. So what I do is I ask people, tell me about yourself in terms of what's your attachment style, fearful attachment, sometimes anxiety attachment, sometimes a secure attachment. So I ask them, what's your attachment style? And if they don't know, then I I give them a test to find out. I also ask them, what's their love language? I also ask them, where in the sibling group do you fall? I also ask them what hand they write with, because honestly, for as little as you might think about this, 
left-handed people already live in a world that's that not predominantly for them. So I asked them a billion questions because think about it. I, uh, are you guys familiar with the love languages or, or no? Yes. Yes. Okay. Because think about it. Hypothetically speaking, somebody with the love language, let's just say uh, physical touch, is going to handle a physical affair much differently than somebody that has a love language of, let's just say, acts of service. So it's just these little tiny differences that I ask about because I want to give an individualized healing plan to someone. And when it comes to trauma and healing trauma, pebbles make mountains and raindrops make sea. Every little aspect counts and is important. And so that, so that's the first thing. The second thing is I ask about their narrative. What is your narrative? And I challenge that narrative if I feel that it's not serving them. So for instance, hypothetically speaking, let's just say I'm dealing with somebody whose spouse has an addiction and they're telling me, I can't believe it. They, you know, would leave work and they would go have the time of their life and they would blah, blah. And I, and and that's not the case. That's not the time of their life. They were dealing with an, an illness. So again, it's, it's addressing the narrative. Now it also depends on, are you guys working on reconciliation or are you working on a separation? Was there a therapeutic disclosure? So, I mean, there's a big, long, detailed process. It's a long journey, but, but one worth taking. And I'll tell you something, people that go through the steps of healing from betrayal trauma come out to be some of the happiest, best, confident people, whether they've reconciled or divorced. I could see that because, you know, betrayal to us as humans is probably one of the biggest thing on the list that we don't like. So to be able to come out of it, I could see why that would make people really happy and respectful because they made it out of something that they did probably didn't think that they would. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, another thing too is when I used to do premarital counseling, I would try to uh, incorporate, if there's such thing, is an affair-free marriage. Because listen, both of you guys are completely different today than you were five years ago. Mm-hmm. And you guys are going to be, you guys are going to be different people five years from now than you are today. So unless you and your spouse are constantly building bridges to one another, get to know the, the evolvement of the new humans that both of you are, you're going to just separate. And unfortunately we live in a society that's constantly pulling people away. I mean, every aspect of our life, somebody's pulling you in a different direction. You go to work in the morning, your, your boss wants more out of you. You come home, your kids want more out of you. You go to church on Sunday, the preacher wants more out of you. You come and talk to your spouse, he, he or she wants more out of you. You are so stretched thin in every area. If you are not proactive to make those bridges to your spouse, before you know it, there's going to be a wedge. And I'm not saying that is, you know, what happens with an affair, you do open a door for a potential affair or betrayal to happen. A lot of couples, they do decide, you know what, I'm not responsible for what my spouse did at all. And they're not. No one's responsible at all for what their spouse or or, or significant other did. But people can take responsibility for how they presented themselves in the relationship and what they both can do together if they're going to reconcile to make the future brighter and better. As my I mom like says, it takes two. Well, see, I think of, I have a music background, so I immediately start singing Rob bass. It takes two to make things go right. Oh, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> Whenever I see that, I picture Ryan Reynolds singing that. And what movie was oh, he in? Yes. The, the Proposal when he's singing yes. it. To, yes. That was a good movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> he even got up there with his voice. I can't sing that high. <laughs> that is awesome. That was a good movie. That's just what it makes me think. As soon as he started singing it, that's what popped in my head was Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't about to sing that high, but. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have a spiritual background, it takes three, two parties and the higher creator. You know, I always say marriage is like a garden. What gets watered is going to flourish and grow. Oh, that's nicer than my it takes two. Yeah, I like that. I like, I like gardens anyway. So on that same vein, I guess, I always tell people, you know, the grass isn't greener. The grass is greener where you choose to water it and mow it. Yep. So yep. where you give your time and attention to. And you know what? Even if the grass is greener on the other side, that still has to be mowed too. So not mm-hmm. everything's all glitter and gold. So what the top thing or top piece of advice you'd give to a single person and to a couple? Okay, so is this, so you mean single person 18, single person 65, single person that wants a relationship, single person that doesn't just, care about a relationship? Just just a single, <laughs> just general. Like what's like the best advice for a single person in general? Coming from being an intrapersonal relationship coach, working on the relationship with yourself, I would say to get to know yourself. So I uh, am a wedding officiant. And so I marry people for lack of a better term. And so many times I am seeing an exchange of I do's between people who have no clue who the I am is. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that one person thinks they're marrying somebody who they're not because you like, if you're, if you're bringing forth somebody that you don't even know, your spouse isn't psychic. So I I would say, get to know who you are. And I'm talking about from a basic level, your likes, your dislikes, the books you like, the books you don't like, your boundaries, your things that bring you passion in life, things that bring you peace and enjoy life. Because once you get married, the dynamics change. It's not that you don't enjoy life anymore. It's the dynamics change. And if you're not ready to to negotiate and to compromise and all that stuff that that's absolutely needed in a marriage, then do not go and start seeking somebody. Let me tell you something. And I I know I kind of went on and on with this answer, but one of the, it's convenient, the society we live in, right? We have everything at our fingertips. The problem with that though, is that for instance, if we want a meal, we go through a driveway and within minutes, we get a meal. If we're horny, we get on an app and within minutes, we can meet somebody for sex. Anything we want within minutes is at our fingertip. True relationships, that's not the way it is. It is a very slow growing garden where it, there's, you're going to be bored sometimes. You're going to be frustrated sometimes. If you're married for over two years and you haven't thought of leaving, then you're not in a real marriage. Marriage is not. <laughs> it. So if you are single and you're not all about forgiveness. You're not all about negotiation. You're not all about compromise. You're not ready to be in a relationship. Laying it out the true way. Yep. You know, one of the things is that when, if we're not going to learn the lessons proactively in a good way, we're going to have to go through the school of hard knocks. And that (laughs) doesn't feel good a lot. Somebody recently asked me my why, which I I never have a good answer for that because I always want to say, I'll, I'll tell you my why not. I don't know about my why, but I'll tell you my why not. But one of the things I do try to do is take the lessons from my trauma to help prevent other people from taking their pain and giving themselves suffering. Because listen, 
Other people usually give us pain, but we're the ones who give ourselves suffering. If I call both of you right now, whatever, let's just say I call you bitches, right? <laughs> okay. So, so I just, I just caused you pain theory, right? Okay. Yeah. But now you take that for the next two days and you're like, I can't believe that guy called me a bitch. Oh, I'm so pissed. I'm fearing. Well, now you're causing your own self suffering. Mm -hmm. So I caused your pain, but you're causing yourself suffering. So one of the things I want to do is use my, the lessons from my trauma to prevent people from causing themselves suffering after they've been pained. And that's one of the reasons we started this podcast. So that other people knew that they weren't alone and they could learn from others. Yes, because I'll tell you something. And, and, and I think that's why I'm a pretty successful coach. Because trust me when I tell you, there's a lot of life coaches out there that call themselves life coaches and they don't have a client. But I think one of the reasons I'm relatively successful is because I think people like relatability even over likability. Think about yep. it. If hypothetically speaking, and I hope I don't touch any triggers and I apologize if I do, let's just say... Well, let me use somebody else. Let's just say somebody lost a child, miscarriage, mm -hmm. what have you. And you're talking to somebody who didn't have a miscarriage and they're giving you sympathy and they're giving you, you know, all, you know, all the right words, but boy, isn't it different if you talk to somebody who also had a miscarriage? Yes. Yeah. So people want relatability over likability. As disgusting as my childhood was, as horrible I mean, my God, being molested by my uncle wasn't fun. Losing everything in a fire wasn't fun. Never sleeping at night because strangers would come in and violate the hell out of me anytime they wanted any place to do it. That wasn't fun. Living on the streets wasn't fun. Having a gun to my temple wasn't fun. But if I could use that, if I could use my trauma to help somebody else, then all of that shit wasn't in vain. Because... I'll tell you what I say all the time is that we all go through crap. And if you don't learn from it, you paid, you paid a fee, but if you do learn from it, you paid tuition. So every time I help somebody, I'm paying tuition for my childhood. I like that. That's a good saying. And also, do you renew vows? Cause we're going to renew vows next year and you would be so much fun to have. <laughs> oh, I would love to do that. Rihanna. No, you need to come and do my brother-in-law's <laughs> wedding. <laughs> come to Chicago. Do a two-for-one. There you hey. go. We'll do a two-for-one deal. <laughs> Two-first. <laughs> yes, and I'll tell you something. Renewing of vows is awesome. I'm glad you guys are thinking about that. You're putting your marriage, you know, as a priority. I don't know if you're going to change your vows, but it's always good to, to take a look at them and update them or upgrade them because you guys are growing together. You know, I, it's funny when people say human beings. We're not human beings. We're human evolvements. We're not beings. I, I, I'm not the same. Like I just said, I'm not the same person I was five years ago. Nobody's a being. We're human evolvements. So That's it's good true. to constantly, you know, work on those vows and, and upgrade them. Unless life is peachy and perfect, keep the vows you had and keep going and flowing. Yeah, when I got married, I really wanted to do like individual vows, but we just stuck with the regular uh, church vows because Tom was like I'm not good like at the time he's like I'm not really good with words and stuff and like I'll forget and I just want to have like the regular I do's and so I was like okay fine like I don't care one way or the other I'm marrying you I still love you obviously uh, but now that you said like doing and evolving your own vows or whatever that's what I would do for like a renewal for sure because yeah. a renewal is a little bit more 
relaxed. I think there's a little bit less stress, I would yeah. hope. On top of that, you know, when we first get into a relationship, it's, it's passionate love. A lot of our love is based on feelings. It's passionate love. Well, after you're with somebody for a while, it grows more into a compassionate love. So it's no more on feeling, it's on choice. I mean, think mm -hmm. about it. I don't know about you guys. I mean, I'm going on 20 years of marriage. Oh my gosh. And I love my spouse, but I'm not sure there's butterflies when he pulls into the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm happier and more in love and turned on now than I ever was. But that's a choice. 18 years ago, 19 years ago, there were butterflies. Yeah. That was a passionate love. Now it's all about choice. So to renew your wedding vows, it's no more about passionate love. Now it's about compassionate love. You adopted kids, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, was, I wasn't sure if, cause we, we did right before this episode, we talked about the next person. So I was like, I can't remember if it was Jay or if it was the next person. So I wanted to ask you, how was your trip with adoption? Like, how did it go for you guys? All right. So I'll tell you. And, and by the way, th that's so true because when we went house hunting after like the umpteenth house, I was like, wait a minute, was that the one with the dual staircase or the band? So yeah, when you're talking about gas, I can understand. So basically, long story short, we, oh Lord, where do I want to start with this? I I'm going to try to be very, very quick. Right after law school, Eric, my spouse, took me to Italy. We went to Rome, we went to Florence. And then on our last day of Venice, we were walking on one of the side ravines. The water's beautiful in Venice. It's so romantic. And we were sharing an umbrella because there was light rain coming down. And he stopped and he got on one knee and he pulled out a ring. And he Aww. said, would you make me this happy forever? I thought it was, I thought he was joking, but, um, <laughs> <You're> like, <"No." laughs> after I came to, and I had some tears in my eyes, I said, yeah, I'd be a fool not to. As soon as we came back, we started planning for the wedding. We had a big, beautiful wedding. We went to Greece for our honeymoon and we, it's beautiful. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. I love Greece. Pretty much the day we got back from Greece, we started the adoption process. You ha for, for people that are not familiar with the adoption process, one of the first things you have to do is you have to create what's called a birth mother book. And what that is, is you have to give the birth mother who's carrying a child a book about you so she can look at it, so she can choose you to give the child to. So we first started uh, working on the birth mother book. We went with an agency. I'm fast forwarding, but there's a lot with this. And then it was about, I think, 13 or 14 months later, we got a call. And they said, there's a birth mother that would like to meet you. We met her on a Thursday. We were in the first sonogram the following Tuesday. And we were in every doctor visit thereafter until she went into labor. Held one of her legs in the back of her neck. And I was helping her calmly breathe. Eric cut, his, cut the cord. So awesome. Two days later, we hugged and kissed and went our separate ways. And there was our son. About four years later, we wanted to add to our family. So this adoption happened in DC with our son. At this point, now we're in New York and we wanted to adopt again to, to give our son a sibling. So we started with the adoption process through a foster agency, but they were just working at a glacial speed. I was telling my spouse, Eric, I said, why don't we look into foster to adopt? And at first he was like, no, I can't see all these kids, you know, come into the house and get close to them. And then they leave. And I understood that, you know, certainly, but it took me about six months to get them on board. And finally, he did get on board. And so we went through all the process of uh, foster to adopt paperwork. I remember right in the middle of it, the social worker at one point said, wait a minute, are you guys thinking of adopting a baby? Because if that's the point, 
stop doing what you're doing. You're not going to adopt a baby through the foster care system. Yeah. If you do adopt, it might be five, six, seven, eight. It's going to come with some attachment issues possibly. Uh, but we, but we said, no, no, we want to move forward with it. And especially now, because at this point we were already getting kids into our home and, and doing this fostering and we are showing our son how awesome it is to help other loving kids. We're also showing our son how blessed he is because a lot of kids don't have, you know, families and things like this. So anyway, uh, we got certified late in August and it was the first week of September. <laughs> we got a phone call from the hospital and they said, we have a baby girl that was just delivered. And if you want her, she's yours. We went into our nursery and uh, talk about gender stereotypes. Within 45 minutes, that whole nursery that was blue turned all pink. <laughs> and we were off to the hospital and we were holding our baby girl. Three months later, when we went to court to uh, solidify the whole adoption, the birth mother came into court and we actually had a chance to talk to her. And what was phenomenal is, uh, so my spouse is Filipino. I'm half Irish. And when the birth mother walked in, we were talking and she's, she's Filipino and the baby's birth father is half Irish. Oh my so gosh. Just, so interesting, you know? Yeah. And she told us, she said, you know, I never knew I was pregnant. She said, I woke up one day, it was like two o'clock in the morning and my bed was soaked. She said, so I called my best friend and I said, I think I'm pregnant and I think my water broke. Can you take me to the hospital? And the friend picked her up and brought her to the hospital. And when she got to the hospital, the doctor said, you're four and a half centimeters dilated. We need to get you right in, which was probably a blessing because she, she, that she was never emotionally attached she, yeah. she never she was pregnant. She she delivered the baby an hour later. She signed herself out of the hospital. And that's when we got a call, that, you know, saying, hey, okay, there's a girl if you guys are interested. Both adoptions, you know, are relatively closed. You know, there's no, uh, there's no, you know, birth mother involved or whatever. Both birth mothers told us, you know, we're not going to bother you ever. But if you ever need anything, don't hesitate to reach out. And they were both two beautiful adoptions. And now we have a 10 year old and a five year old. That's amazing. And it's happy to hear because my husband and I want to foster to adopt. And it's always like, a, it's a scary thing, you know, like this, you said, because you have kids possibly coming in and out. So it's nice to hear a very positive story with it. Yes. I mean, I'm sure, you know, there are some stories with foster kids. You have kids that come from all types of homes. I mean, there's kids that might want to light fires in your home or steal, or, I mean, you're going to get those. Honestly, the benefits are so so rewarding. We've taken in kids very short term and we've taken in kids long term. And to bring a child into your home that will not let you bathe them because, you know, obviously they've been sexually abused, to get them to a point where they're ridiculously comfortable with you bathing them, that's awesome. That's rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I have all the feels now. <laughs> All right. So I think this is a funny question that nobody else has gotten. So you're the first one. If you were a sorcerer, what would you use your magic wand for? You know, I'm going to be honest with you. Okay. So I just, so, so, well, this is a funny question, but I'm now going to turn it sad. Oh so, no. <laughs> no, listen, I was telling you when foster kids come into your house, I said, you know, some of them may steal whatever. I can't tell you how many times foster kids would sneak snacks out of our pantry and put them in their pocket or bring them into their bedroom. Mm -hmm. And I would tell them all the time, guys, anytime you are hungry, you go in the refrigerator, 
you go in the pantry, you get us, you never have, you yes, you never have to steal food from you. All the food is yours at all times. And so it just really made me realize how often kids go without food. So if I could take my sorcerer powers, I would ensure no child ever went hungry. Aww. Aww. I have a quick Why question not? for both of you. Oh, um, where did your parents come up with both your names, Constance and Rietta? Mine is my grandfather's mother's name. Love it. Okay. Mine's kind of the same. So my great-grandmother was Henrietta. So my parents just took off the hen. Oh, snap. <laughs> I love it. Well, I just want to tell you, you guys have been absolutely wonderful. This has been a, a, an amazingly uplifting and funny and emotional chat and interview. And I really appreciate you guys having me on your show. Thank you for coming on our show. Yeah, it's thank you so fun. much. We've really enjoyed having you. And if at any point, either of you or um, anyone could use any of my services, I don't know if you've checked out my website. It's mrjrelationshipcoach.com. Mm-hmm. Happy to help anybody out that could possibly use any of my services. And, and I don't say that sell myself on anything. I say that because so many people do not come forward that are going through betrayal trauma out of shame and guilt and fear and isolation and all that stuff. And I want them to know it happened to you, but it's not about you. I also have to say, I really liked your uh, website. Oh, thank you. Because we we see like a lot of websites and some are great and some are not. Yours was good. We will link your website in the, the show notes so people can easily find you. Your guys are awesome. Thank you so much. You guys have a wonderful night. I really enjoyed this conversation. This is how to deal when shit gets real, guys. Uh, you know, listen to us every Friday and don't forget to like, rate, and review and check us out on all of our social media. Thank you so much for joining us.